Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, would you open it to the book of 1 Timothy? If you don't, you're welcome to read off the screen. Um, and then just next time, bring your Bible. But I know what it's like when you've got a different translation in your hand, and it is nice to look up and see what everybody else is reading from, especially if you have one of those crazy, fun, new translations that, that no one knows where they got that from. So then, you know, it's good to be on the same page. First Timothy, and we're going to skip all the way to chapter 4. Praise God. We're going to skip the first part just for the sake of time. Don't think I'm scared of preaching the first part or, or worried about it. We're just going to go to the straight uh, meat of what we're talking about tonight, which is the lovely topic of discipline. Now, when people hear discipline, you don't automatically assume that you'll be jumping up and down and shouting during a sermon on discipline or even smiling. But that's probably because we don't understand how good that can be. It's probably because we don't truly understand what discipline is. What's the root word of discipline? If you were to break it down, it is disciple. That's a good word, isn't it? We all want to be a disciple. Can we be disciplined? We can be disciplined. The, the word that comes up in this chapter that's translated discipline, because there's many words in the New Testament, there's at least three or four that are translated discipline uh, from different words, and they mean different things. For instance, in my translation of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 9, when he talks about uh, competing in a race, and we may read this later, he says, I buffet my, I, he says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Well, the King James says buffet, but of course, no one used that word and we all thought it meant to go to a smorgue somewhere. You know, we thought it was buffet or maybe you didn't, but we read that. We didn't know what it meant. So in, in my translation, which is the New American Standard, it says, I discipline my body, but it literally meant to hit until bruised. That sounds fun, doesn't it? To, to repeatedly hit until you're black and blue. And you go, I don't want to do that to my body. I love my body. But apparently Paul loved the reward. He loved the prize better than his own body. And that is a word that's not used as abuse. It's not used as just self-abuse and just punishing your body for no reason. He uses it in the term as like a boxer would use. It was a boxing term. Boxers don't hate their body, although you might think that they do at times. You might, you might be persuaded to believe that they, they just, just don't like themselves. But they, the truth is they see a prize, they see a reward, they see something at the end of the line that if I train myself properly, I can get that reward, I can obtain that which I've been training for. The word, or the, actually the, the thought of training for an athletic event is all through the New Testament, especially from Paul's epistles. We see this talk of, of running a race, boxing, and, and all of these other things. In fact, the, the, the term discipline that we're about to read about now is a word that, that is described um, as training in, a, in like a wrestling facility. It's like a wrestling world word. It's training in a gymnasium, at, typically naked, which, of course, I'm not encouraging that. I'm not encouraging. I mean, I'm sure there's a preacher out there who would go off on that point and says, typically they train naked, which means that you should... Uh, Take off everything. I mean, no, don't let anything get in your way. But I think that's pressing the point. Let's read it, and uh, you'll just see for itself what, what the Word is saying, and you don't have to add or take away from it. In verse 6, in pointing out these things, what's he pointing out? He's pointing out um, about doctrines and hypocrisy and, and some false teachings that were going to come. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished, on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. I want you to hear that. Constantly nourished. Think about that. That means you're feeding off of it. That's where you get your strength. That's where you get your life. You are nourished on the word of God. You're nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine. Doctrine being teaching. Doctrine being instruction. So that's something to be fed from. It's something to be nourished on. Now you may think, I've heard, I've heard many people say this, you know, I come to church and get fed. That's not the only reason you should come to church, to just get fed. The, the church is for so many things. Gathering together is for so many things. We gather together to encourage one another. We gather together for fellowship. We gather together to worship. We gather together, yes, to receive the word, and yes, to receive instruction, but it's only a part of the pie. 
But maybe you thought, well, I come to get fed, but the guy that's preaching, he's already fed. Or he got fed a long time ago, and now he's just giving me what he learned a long time ago in Bible school. That's simply not the case. Timothy here is a young pastor. Some may say even even doing the works of an apostle. And he's told to be constantly nourished. Constantly nourished. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and on the sound doctrine you have been following. In verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. No offense, old women. I don't think anybody in this room would consider themselves old. So we're just going to. Even if you were. He's being facetious here. He's not saying old women in the church are allowed to believe fables. He's just saying there's no point to them. There is no reason for them. He says, stay away from them. And he said, in fact, says, have nothing to do with. Now, if you have nothing to do with, it doesn't mean you dabble. It doesn't mean you, you supplement. It means you have nothing to do. Nothing to do with worldly fables. Fit only for old women. So you may wonder, what are these worldly fables? I can't tell you I know exactly what Timothy's talking I can't tell you every single fable he's talking about, but I can tell you what creeps in the church and throughout the New Testament, specifically in the latter half of the New Testament, we hear a lot about it. We hear a lot about people that don't use what they have. They don't, they, they've received the word. There are a lot of people that may have heard the word, never done anything with it, and quite frankly, get bored. And I've run across, across this myself, that, that if somebody has been sitting and hearing the word for long enough, they never do anything with it. They get bored. And they want something else. And pretty soon, if you were to preach an old preach out of John 3.16, they don't get excited about that. Unless you have some secret document somewhere that showed that Jesus was wearing purple at the time, which signified that, that this was happening, which also signified that it was under a new moon. And, and while it was under the new moon, the, there was a Jewish feast going on, which symbolized this. And after a while, we're not even looking at the Bible anymore. We're looking at all this other stuff. Now, I realize there are times when we bring out things and you do a little digging, you find out something you didn't know before. That's a good thing. As long as you're being nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine and not being nourished on your brain being tickled by something it didn't hear before. Do you know the difference? There is, there is a tickling that happens when, when you just want to hear something new. And if you get into that too long, somebody will give you something new. And there's a reason it's new. Because it's not in here. There's a reason it's new because it should never have been preached. And so we, we discipline ourselves. We, we, we nourish ourselves and choose to, to feed on the word of God and still get excited about it. And the way to still get excited about the word of God is to actually use it. To actually apply it. I have never met somebody that's going out there praying for people, leading people to the Lord, seeing miracles happen in their daily life. I don't see them come to church and get bored. They're excited. They're excited for the word of God because even though they've read that verse a thousand times, somehow it's still new to them. Somehow it comes alive in a new way to them. So there's, a, there's worldly fables, which I suppose could mean a lot of things. It's things that tickle your brain, these little side stories and legends and myths and all of these other things that really have nothing to do with the word in themselves. Very easy to get off on that. Very easy. But have nothing to do with it. <laughs> don't, don't sprinkle it into your sermons. Don't sprinkle it into your Bible study. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. On the other hand, thank God there's another hand. There's always another hand in the Bible, isn't it? He doesn't ever just, well, rarely does he tell you, don't do this and just goes on. There's always a don't do this, instead do this. See, because God doesn't want you to go through life simply not doing things. Because if you go through life trying to not to do things, you're, you're never going to do anything good. Just trying to stay away from things that are bad. If, if all you do in life is try to stay away from bad things, you won't succeed. You can't succeed that way. You have to see all right, I stay away from this so that I can do this. I, I run, I don't run this way so that I can run this way. Ephesians 5 is a great example of that. I won't read it tonight, but read it on your own time. Ephesians 5 says, you used to do this, now do this. Don't do this, now do this. The one who steals is to steal no longer, but rather 
let him work with his hands. He used to steal with his hands. Now he works with his hands and so that he has something to give. You teach a man who's addicted to stealing how to be addicted to giving, and there's a man who'll never steal again. First Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old, old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now we know from Hebrews that God plays a part in our discipline. But in this case, he says, discipline yourselves. Discipline yourselves. Like I said earlier, this word discipline refers to training. Athletic training. Typically in a gymnasium. In fact, the word, if you saw this word, if, if I were to say it to you without being intimidated by actual Greeks in the audience, if I were to say it to you, you'd say that sounds exactly like gymnasium. It sounds very much like that. And this is what it's talking about, training, a, a vigorous training. This is not merely exercising that uh, somebody does to get off the baby weight. This is exercising vigorously. As I said, it, in ancient times, they would mostly do this in the nude because they had no air conditioning and you live in hot countries. And, and if you're training, this is just what you do. So don't go too far on that. But on the other hand, discipline yourself. Train vigorously for the purpose of... Of godliness. It's got a point to it. What I love about this. Is that it tells me that godliness is attainable. It tells me. Now first of all we know. Let's, let's just get something straight. Your spirit when you got born again. Was born out of truth. Was born in holiness. Was born in godliness. Your spirit was born again perfect as it ever could be. But as Pastor Brownie said. You still had this old brain. That has some old habits. And old ways of thinking. You had the flesh that, that still wanted to do some things it used to do. And there is a renewing of the mind that has to take place. And a training of the body. As Paul said, I beat up my body and make it my slave. Why? Because before I got born again, my body thought it could do what I wanted it to do. What he wanted to do all the time. If I wanted pie, I eat pie. It doesn't matter if I'm fasting. This is what I want right now. If I wanted to look at somebody the wrong way, I could do that because that's what I want to do. But this is not who we are as new believers. Your spirit now has the driver's seat. Your spirit is the one that communicates directly with God. Directly. Your spirit is right because your spirit knows the Holy Spirit. So if your spirit can be in the driver's seat, your soul and your flesh will obey it, you'll be good. So what does this take? It takes training. Train yourself. For the purpose of godliness, a disciplined life will result in a godly life, always. Now, what kind of discipline is the question? Because in the next verse, in verse, verse 8, he says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit or limited profit, limited gain from bodily discipline. This is, this is a fleshly discipline. This is just telling yourself, I can't eat this, I can't eat that, um, I can't say this, I can't say that. He's not merely talking about an outward discipline. Wearing the right clothes, eating the right things, uh, exercising. He says all of this is limited. It, he doesn't say it has no profit. It's limited. It's very limited. So you shouldn't spend all your time worrying about the outside stuff. He says, but godliness is profitable for all things, for everything. Godliness is profitable since it holds promise for the present life. Thank God. You know, this is not just in the sweet by and by. You know, if I do this enough in this life, then God will reward me in the next. <laughs> and it's hard. And I'll write an old Southern gospel song about how hard it is. And we'll sing it on the camp meeting trail. And when you ask me to tell my testimony, I'll tell it with tears and preferably get the piano player to play some background behind me so you feel as bad as I feel about the discipline I put myself through. But in the sweet by and by, someday the Lord will reward me. Because I know there waits a reward for me. And though I don't see it in this earth. Someday. I know I'll get there. But there's a limit to that. And here he says. It holds promise. For this life. And. Thank God. 
also for the life to come. You know, the life to come is worth a lot more than this life. The rewards in the life to come are better than the rewards in this life. But, thank God, godliness for you has profit in this life. Because that's the deal. You were created for this. We've talked about this the last couple of Wednesdays. You were born for this. This is what you were made for. This is what the whole story of redemption was to bring you back to God, to bring you back to the place he created you to be, which is in perfect order with him, perfect fellowship with him, perfect joy, perfect love, perfect life. That you go back to the place where we don't live for ourselves, but for him. But at the same time, we're in constant fellowship with God. We're reconciled to God, brought back to him. Life is different. A godly life will reflect the God that you serve. A godly life will reflect God. It will show his nature. It will show his attributes. It will show him to the world. It is worship in action. Is really what godliness is. Very simply, worship in action. It's worship in life. In fact, if you were to go to the original word here, and I, I don't do too much of this, but if you were to go to the original word, break it down, it could be broken down very easily into meaning just worship or good worship. Godliness is, is a way of revering him, worshiping him with everything that you have. And so he says we discipline ourselves for the purpose. There is a purpose behind it. For the purpose of godliness. Godliness is fruit. It's the fruit of discipline. He says it holds promise for the present life. And also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Okay. So if, if you didn't believe it the first time. There's one whole verse telling you. Go back and read that again. It's a trustworthy statement. Worthy and deserving full acceptance. Do we all fully accept that right now? That godliness is profitable in this life and the life to come. That, that there is a limit to bodily discipline. But there's no limit to godliness. In verse 10, he says this, for it is for this, for what? For what? Godliness? Sounds like it, doesn't it? For this, this godliness, this purpose, this promise, for this we labor and strive. Now, when you hear discipline, if you're anything like I was when I first started to study the word. When I would always hear discipline, I think of getting spanked or grounded. It's not a good thing. <laughs> so discipline never really had a nice ring to it. I always knew it was necessary. I didn't really like it. Now, in fact, there is a verse that says in, in Hebrews, it says there's no discipline at the moment that feels good. But once again, He's not using the same word here, but he's using another word to talk about athletic training. And, and like an athlete, you think about it, he doesn't feel great when he's pushing himself to the limit. She doesn't feel great when she's training herself so that she can compete in the Olympics and, and actually be competitive. That doesn't feel great. However, there is a reward to it. And you never talk to those athletes and when they're on the stand and they're on the pedestal. They don't whine about how hard training was and how, how much they hated it. And it wasn't worth it at all. And I wish I had never done it. What, what a terrible idea, coach. I can't, I can't believe you made me do this. Now, they're full of joy, aren't they? You ever met any downright depressed athletes that just absolutely hate what they're doing? You might have. But they're in the wrong race. They should just do something else. If you live in Russia or something, you have to do it. That's not Russia anymore. That's old Russia. China. All right. In this case, the reward is well worth the training. And the training can be joyful. Did you know that? The training can be joyful, but it's all about what you're focusing on. The training is not, does not have to be a bad experience. Training can be an awesome thing. And when you really know that you're competing for something, training is beautiful. You enjoy training. You enjoy exercising for a goal. He says, for this we labor and strive. Think of those two words. Laboring, that's work. Striving, that's effort. But it's so worth it. So worth it. 
And it doesn't have to be one of those things that you cringe when you hear it. Because we're all running a race. And when you see that runner run, they don't look like they're on a picnic when they're running. Have you ever looked at their faces as they're running? You look at the slow motion because that's the only way you'll ever see anything on the sprints. You look at the slow motion, they're straining. Every muscle is straining. But you know they wouldn't take it back. This is what they've been waiting for all their life. This is the race. This is the most beautiful thing. So even though it looks like they're straining, don't think they're miserable. Even though it looks like they're striving, don't think they regret it. This is the big time. This is the, this is the race. So in the same way, guys, you don't need to be so depressed and think, oh, labor and strive, those aren't happy words. Yes, they are when you're running the race and you're running to win. They're good words. I'm not just going to sit back. We're, we're, we're here. We're on the great relay race of history where the scripture says there's a cloud of witnesses who've run their part of the race. Their race isn't done unless I finish my part. So I run. I fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, and I run. For this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. <laughs> You see, the difference between fleshly discipline and godliness has a lot to do with who your hope is in. Fleshly discipline puts all your hope in you. If I can do this, if I'll do this to me, if I can make myself do this, and and there's a limit to that, but if you put your hope in God and you say, Lord, I'm yours, my life is yours, I run the race for you, then he'll discipline you. He'll, He'll do this. Now, it says discipline yourself, but you do everything through him, right? So, He says, we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Thank God. This is so cool that when we think about this, we think about discipline, we think about running a race. It is so cool to me to think that we have got a perfect example of someone who's run before it. And he's not just sitting back and saying, there, I gave you an example. Run it by yourself. Just try to copy me as close as you can. Run like I run. Watch how I move my hands. Watch how I move my feet. And try to mimic that. But you've got Jesus Christ who's run the race perfectly. Broke every record. Can't be beat. And he doesn't just tell you how to run the race. He runs it through you. He comes in you and he runs. And if you'll let him, he'll take right over. Can we come to a place of discipline where we realize that we are running a race? Now, a few Sundays ago, we, we read from that beautiful section of John where Jesus refers to himself, John 10, as a good shepherd. It's a beautiful thing to be shepherded. To trust a shepherd, to say, your rod and staff comfort me, to really be able to say, he is the good shepherd. Now, remember what he said. He said, my sheep follow me because they know my voice. He says, a stranger they simply will not follow. Because they don't know his voice. We talked about this at that time, but for those of you who weren't there, it really matters what voices you let in all the time. A sheep is not hearing a plethora of voices every day and just somehow figuring out that one of them is his shepherd. Because it doesn't say they know which one's mine and they know which one's the stranger's, does it? It doesn't say a stranger they will not follow because they know he's a stranger. It says a stranger they will not follow because they don't know his voice. What does that mean? They're not familiar with that voice. They're not familiar with it. It's not one that they hear all the time. It matters a whole lot, guys, what you're nourishing yourself on. Because what Paul says to Timothy in this chapter is he says, keep nourishing yourself, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. Because what you're putting in your ears is the voice that you know. And the voice you know is the voice you'll follow. So if you're going to, if you if you really, and we talked about this before, but I'll say it again. I, I used to be able to sound holy if you said you didn't, <laughs> you didn't have a TV or you didn't watch TV. Tia and I have not had a TV signal for some time. That doesn't mean we don't have endless opportunities for entertainment because we have the internet now. And 
You could say, well, I don't have a TV. And everybody would be like, oh, you're so holy. But in reality, you can watch 24 hours of television without having a television. It's very easy. It's very easy. We live in a time where entertainment is so easy to get a hold of. And we're addicted to it. We are, we are ad- well, I'm not going to say we. Our culture is addicted to entertainment. So addicted. We'll listen to stuff. I mean, I, I, come on. <laughs> there was a parody. One, there was a parody out. Um, it was a song that some youth pastor did about being a youth pastor. And it was funny. But one of the lines was painful and true all at the same time. He says, he says I don't condone Family Guy, but I watch it all the same. And if you don't know what that show is, it's, probably, it's not one you should watch. But it, I, the thing is, I laughed and cried at the same time because I know so many young youth ministers that that's exactly what they do. They, they can quote you the line from every episode, but the kids come up to them, can I watch the show? No, you can't. But they know every line. And, and I'm, so I'm not calling them out for it because we all have got areas where we're working on. But the thing is, is that We've let, we let things in we normally wouldn't let in because they're funny. And if it's funny, I'll watch something. You know, if it's funny, it makes me laugh, I'll let it in to my house. And if it's got a good beat, I'll let it in. If it's got a good sound, good guitar riff, I'll let it in. But words are words all the same. And whether or not you're listening to a sermon or a sermon put to music, it's getting in. So entertainment has become the Trojan horse that has let all this stuff come into our house because it entertains us, and you get a free pass if you can make us laugh. You get a free pass if we can dance to your beat. We've got to get past that because we're letting a lot of voices in that are not the voice of the shepherd. I'm not saying you cut every single type of entertainment off, but we have got to get to the place where we're like Jesus and we say, my food is this. This is what feeds me. This is what I want. When I'm hungry, this is what I want. I want my Bible. When I'm hungry, I want, I want, I want to spend time with God. When I need strength, I go to him. It's not when I, when I, when I don't feel like I need strength, I go to him. Like That's the thing you desire and you crave. If, I mean, if you don't have it for a specific period of time, you miss it. As David said, as the deer pants for water. So my soul longs for you. And if that weren't enough, later he talks about being in a dry, waterless place. In a dry and desert place where there is no water. My flesh. Your flesh, which is supposed to want the water. In the classic spiritual tales that we imagine, the spirit is the one that says, I want God. And your flesh is the one that says, fool, you need water. But in this case, David's flesh even wants God. Because that's a man who spent so much time in the presence of God that not just his spirit, not just his soul, but his body begins to crave it. Can you imagine? Being so, so comfortable in the presence of God, so accustomed to that, to that sense that, you, that you're purely ministering to him and he's ministering to you. That, that that's what your body wants when there's no water around and you should be thirsty, you want that? That's a great place to be. It's going to take some discipline, but good discipline, training. We can do this. You know why? Because he died so that we could run this race, not in our own flesh, but through him, through his strength, through his anointing, through his power. And you know what? When you know what the reward is, you run. When you know what the reward is, the training is worth it. When you know what the prize is, it's worth it all. He says the purpose here is godliness. It's obtainable. If you knew how beautiful a godly life could be. This is not godliness. You see, we at times think of godliness as this worldly idea of godliness, which is purely aesthetic, which is purely on the outside, like the whitewashed tombs that were the Pharisees. 
that you do everything just so and you act just so and you, and you dress just so and you walk just so. But that's not what God is talking about. He's talking about a place where you're close enough to him in your daily life. You're hearing his voice so much that you begin to sound like him. You begin to look like him. You begin to smell like him. You are reminding the world around you who he is. And that's a good life. That's inner, and it works its way out. So, let's go to the next verse here. He says, prescribe and teach these things. That's why we're doing it tonight. Apparently, we have to, and we get to. He says, prescribe and teach these things. These are important things to teach. And he says this, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, Show yourself as an example of those who believe. Till I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance by the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, the things, the gifts that were placed inside you, the things that God has put in you. Take pains with these things. That means focus on them, friends. This means it's worth focusing on. Did you know you can neglect a gift? We sometimes think that if God gave us a gift, it'll show up at random times. It just happens, right? That's a gift God gave you. At the right time, it will come out. Not necessarily. So apparently, you can neglect it. If you can neglect it, you can blame God as much as you want. Why don't you give me any gifts? I thought you gave me a gift and I never saw it happen. Well, here he says, don't neglect it. Don't just leave it there and expect. If I leave it alone long enough, it'll grow up and it'll do something great. No, no, no. He says, there's gifts within you. There's things I put in there. Not Paul, but God. There's things that were placed inside there. Don't neglect them. He says, take pains with them. Be absorbed in them. So that your progress will be evident to all. Do you think that that progress could be described as godliness? You think that progress could just be described as a life that is truly being lived out to the destiny that God's designed it for? Take pains and be absorbed. I like that phrase, be absorbed. I really do. Because I think if I can be absorbed in all that he is and all that he's done for me, and all that he's given me, and all that he's placed inside me, if I can be absorbed in those things, they'll take over. What happens when you absorb, when, when you just baptize something, when you drench it, when you dunk it? You dunk cloth in a dye. What happens? It comes up, it absorbs it, and when it comes out, what does it look like? If it was white and it went into red dye, it is now red. There's not a part of it that's white anymore. It has changed its nature. When you truly absorb yourself into who He is, what He's done, what He's given, His love for you and His love in you, you absorb yourself in the things that God has given you and, and, and placed inside of you, your progress will be evident to all. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Do you hear that again? Pay close attention to yourself. First, now this is good advice for ministers, but... I also believe it happens to be good advice for believers. Pay close attention first to yourself, then to teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Thank God. This gets exciting for me. Discipline has become a good word for me. It's starting to be a good word. I'm not flinching at discipline anymore. I like it now. Because I know what the reward is. And I know that discipline is not just a spanking, <laughs> which is what I originally thought it was. It's not. It's training. It's training. We're going to train. You, you don't train for nothing, do you? You don't train just. You don't just train just for the point of training. I mean, there's some people that do that. I've got friends that go to the gym so much. It has almost become idolatry. <laughs> I mean, it's just like <laughs> your body is a temple, not the basilica. You know, it's. It's a little much. 
but the Lord can talk to them about their own lives, and he probably needs to talk to me about mine. I probably don't go enough, so who am I to talk? But there is a, there is a place where you realize that that kind of discipline has little profit. But there is a godly discipline. Discipline yourself. Train. Let's just say that, because that is the word. Train vigorously for the purpose of godliness. You can get there. Remember, you were born to godliness. Your flesh and your soul are catching on. Your soul is being renewed and your flesh is just learning to obey. And this leads to godliness. To a life that's drenched, absorbed. I love what it says in Titus. Adorn your doctrine. Don't you love that? That means wear your doctrine. That doesn't mean buy as many Christian t-shirts as you can. That have all the puns in the world. Nothing wrong with those shirts. If you want Christian t-shirts, I got no problem with that. But that's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is referring to a lifestyle that you're so absorbed in what you believe that you can't help but live it out all the time. It shows up all the time. That does not come from an outward, an outward attempt at causing yourself to be disciplined, an outward attempt to be worshipful. It comes from an inward It comes from in here. Because the Pharisees had the outward stuff down pat. And Jesus says, the dead on the inside. So godliness does not begin with rule one, rule two, rule three. What does it begin with? We're to look at the word. What did he say? Nourish yourself. Feed on the words of the faith and sound instruction. If you'll feed on the word, if you'll feed on that time with God, if you'll feed on that time of worship, which is, which is all the time, if you'll feed on that, what you eat really does come out, doesn't it? I mean, you are what you eat. Sounds weird because I don't walk around saying I'm a banana, I'm a banana. But if I eat enough bananas, I'm going to be healthier. My body's going to show whether you've been eating right or eating wrong. And in the long run, if you're feeding on the living word of God, That can't be spoken without power. Can't be spoken without power. God didn't say, let there be light. Just in a passive way. And then later said, nah, I thought about it and I'm serious. Let there be light. And then light kind of came. And then he he said for a little bit longer, no, no, no. You know what? I've been thinking about it a little bit longer. Let there be stars too, and some, but still, let there be light. No, I mean, when he said let there be light, it happened right then. When he said Lazarus come forth, Lazarus came right then. There's not, there's, not a, there's not a time where his word doesn't happen, doesn't work. So if we're feeding on the living word of God, it's affecting us. It's changing us. It's making alive things that were dead. It's, it's stirring things up in us. And you sh- it shows in life. Let's look in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, we're going to see the same struggle between somebody trying to teach an outward uh, bodily discipline and somebody really knowing what it is to be disciplined according to the faith. Be be letting God work through you, letting God work in you. Because there is a great difference between faith and legalism. Legalism has consequences and limits. Faith produces endurance been in several communities that had um, epidemic rates of backsliding. It's epidemic. Uh, chronic backsliders. And these communities had, I mean, it was not like they were going well and they just stopped coming to church. It was like, it was like they were following God, front row, hands up in the air, and then, and then going about as far to the other side as you could possibly go. Some that were unrecognizable. But, it, but the thing was, it wasn't, I mean, we all have seen this happen, and it's, it's happened, some of you, that may have been you, and thank God you've been rescued, amen? But it happened so often in some of these communities that we've been in. 
so often that it was come to be expected. It was almost seasonal, which is weird. And what you found was there were series of meetings in which the preacher did everything he could do to scare them straight. Just to scare them. It was so harsh that anybody in that room would feel like I'm the worst person in the world. I, I, I thought I was doing good. I am backsliding, you know. It was such a, a, a fearful nature. And people would, would kind of get themselves going on it. Almost get addicted to it. It was weird. But what, I, what you began to see was, is that fear had a temporary result. It's like if, you, if somebody were to come behind you and you heard footsteps behind you and you knew it was dark and you were in an alley and, and you got scared and you ran. You could run fairly fast for a time. That fear produces a shoot, shot of adrenaline where you just, you take off running. But then, you're, when you're out of breath and you realize nobody's chasing you anymore, you stop and you don't keep running. You don't keep jogging. You, you're, if once you're not afraid, okay. It produced a little bit of adrenaline, but faith produces endurance. Like an athlete you know, a coach doesn't have to go behind him and say, if you stop, I'm going to shoot you. If you stop, I'm going to shoot you. If you stop. No, an athlete can't run that way. What does an athlete do? He trains and he sees the prize and he looks at that prize. And when he runs, he looks at the goal. Unless you're in a marathon, in which case I'm sure he's envisioning that goal. But think of a sprinter. He's, he's looking at it. But even in a marathon, think about it. If you ran short burst of fear, that wouldn't help you. Endurance comes through faith. And when you really have faith in what Jesus has done for you, what he's done in you and what he's doing, what the prize is, what the goal is, what this race is, what the life that he's called you to be, what this is, you run with endurance. You run like an athlete, not like a terrified individual. And so then you, you begin to teach People like this, and you find 30, 40 years later, they're still serving the Lord only at an accelerated pace because they've grown. And they've got other people that have come alongside them. And they've got other people that they've raised up. Why? Because it wasn't a temporary moment where they were scared for their life. It's knowing the master, knowing who he is, and saying this is worth everything. Colossians 2. He says... For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are allowed to see it. For all those who are not pers- have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth. Listen to that. That he describes the understanding God as, as, as a treasure. It is like the wealth of the, he says, of attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. This is not about talking about temporary physical money. This is talking about eternal wealth of knowing him and the power of his resurrection. Attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. How do you think they got a true knowledge of God's mystery? How do you think they got to that point where they, they had that knowledge of his mystery? Do you think possibly they nourished themselves on the word of God and sound doctrine? Do you think that they were, that they heard the word, they believed the word, they followed the word, that God gave them revelation by his spirit? He says this, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, praise God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now they're hidden, not as we've said many times, not from you, but for you. And if you'll care to dig and you'll care to run after it, you'll always find it. For God's not running away from you. When we say we're seeking God, we run after God, it doesn't mean he's running away. But there are things that when you pursue them, you find them. What did Jesus say? Here's the promise. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will find. He says this. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Did you hear that? If 
you really have the true knowledge of his mystery, if you find out who he really is, no one will be able to delude you with a persuasive argument, talk you out of it. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. You hear that? He is rejoicing to see their good discipline. That they have got to the place where they're not just knowing the truth, where they're not just singing about the truth, but it is coming into their daily life. Now, this is an important part as a believer. You've got to realize, I could go through different things that we say are part of that discipline. Certainly, reading the Word of God, absolutely necessary. That's that nourishing. Prayer, absolutely. It says pray without ceasing. I mean, spending time with God, listening to His voice, hearing His voice, absolutely. But I'm not just going to limit it to the things I can list. You have got to get to a place where you desire Him more than you desire anything else. So training becomes fun. Think about it. When you realize that it's the treasure of who he is, it's a treasure of his presence. And his presence is fullness of what? Joy. Does that sound hard to you? No, when you begin to to desire him, training is good. Discipline is, is good. He says this, I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So, Discipline produces godliness, and godliness and stability go together, don't they? He says this. As you, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So you've already received him, right? So walk in him. That's daily. You've received him, now walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed. So that's that doctrine and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men. It kind of sounds like the worldly fables, doesn't it? According to the elementary principles of the world of the world, rather than according to Christ, for in him. Wow. Wow. All the fullness of deity, that's everything God is, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. (laughs) Talk about dynamite. And in him, you have been made complete, but literally, you've been made full. So in Christ, all the fullness of everything God is. All the fullness of everything he has been, all the fullness of everything he will be, is in Christ. And in him, you've been made full. That's not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence that he says you've been made full right after saying all the fullness dwells in Christ. In him, you've been made full. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Do you see what this means? Circumcision was the removal of the flesh that bred corruption. This is the part of you that bred corruption. And in the Old Testament, that was a physical removal of flesh. But now in the New Covenant, there has been a circumcision of heart that's taken place. There's been something that happens. And he says, all the stuff you're doing to make yourself holy on the outside, it's not working. It's limited, but godliness has no limit. And if you'll understand that, that just trying to, trying to beat up my body just for the sake of beating up my body doesn't work. When Paul said, I buffet my body, it wasn't because he felt his body was so bad it needed to be beat up. It was because he's training for a fight. There's a difference. He says, in the removal of the body, of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, wow, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. This is not dead works. This is this is living. Having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. So every charge that was rightly placed against you. You see, the devil is a liar, isn't he? 
But he didn't have to lie before you got born again. He had enough dirt on you, he could just tell you the truth. But now it's a lie. Why? Because that's not who you are anymore. If Satan were to bring up your past that's under the blood of Jesus and were to say, well, look at this, you are a bad person. These are the things you tend to do. It'd all be a lie. Before you got born again, he didn't have to lie. That was true. He did it in a lying way because he's the father of lies, I'm sure. But he didn't even have to make stuff up. You really did have stuff against you, decrees against you. But they've been canceled out. And he has taken it out of the way. Out of the way of what? Wait a second. He's taken it out of the way of what? There's a race that we're running. There's a prize that we're attaining. But more than anything, there's God himself that we were separated from, that we are no longer separated from. Taking it out of the way. Have you ever thought about the verse that said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Think about that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What happens when you take sin out of the equation? You don't come short of the glory of God anymore, do you? You hit the glory of God. You come in contact with the glory of God. He's taken it out of the way. Thank God. Having nailed it to the cross, when he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, okay, so all of that we said, we could have skipped that for time and, and skipped to the other part, but that's absolutely necessary, necessary because he says, therefore, because of what I've just said, all of these things canceled out on your, on your account, all of these things taken out of the way, all of these things, circumcision of heart, baptism into his death and resurrection, crucifixion and punishment for all things that you've done have already been punished, cancellation of the decrees against you. Therefore, because of that, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So he's talking about a legalistic following of the old law. But he's saying these things were a mere shadow of what's really to come. They were just a symbol, a shadow of what was coming. But now we have the fullness of it. We have all the fullness of it, which is in Christ. The substance of everything those things meant, we now find in Christ. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Listen to that. See, we've been talking about training all night. Training for a race, training for a fight. Now, if we're fighting, if we're boxing, if we're racing, we're sure knowing there's a prize coming, aren't we? There's a wreath, there's a crown. How do you lose that crown? You could stop running, or you could turn your attention to all the wrong things. Think about this. I've said this before, but bears repeating. We're running a race, and you spend all your time tipping around, trying not to step out of bounds, and worried, and thinking that the race is just staying in bounds. You're not running for the prize. You're just staying, just trying not to be disqualified. You're not going to run very fast at all. You'll spend all your time going, because eh, you think the race is not stepping out of bounds. But a real runner knows that that's only part of the race. If I step out of bounds, I'm disqualified, but that's not what I'm aiming for. A runner doesn't say, someday I'm going to make it to the Olympics, and I will not be disqualified. That's my goal. That's a lame goal, man. Yeah, you don't want to be disqualified, because if you're disqualified, you don't get the prize. But you don't get the prize if all you care about is not being disqualified. You've got you to gotta go for the prize. He says, don't let anyone defraud you of your prize. How are they going to do that? By delighting in self-abasement. Do you know what that is? That's just totally beating yourself up for the sake of beating yourself up. Self-abasement. It's the difference between being anorexic and being athletic. Do you ever see that? You know what I mean? Like they both might pass up the cheesecake, but for different reasons. 
The anorexic person just says, uh, I, for whatever reason, they're not going to eat anything, and they're going to be skinny and, and unhealthy. But the athletic person, there's a reason. They eat what they eat, and there's a reason they do what they do. They're going for a prize, and it's different. One will hurt you. One will help you. So self-abasement, and they're delighting in it, and you, you see this in the Middle Ages. Oh, my goodness. You still see it today. I mean, there are places, you can go to the Philippines and see people crucify themselves, whip themselves, all these things. But even back in the Middle Ages, you'd see these priests go crawl on broken glass on their knees up in the top and somehow think that made them more holy and in fact delight in it. Brag about it. It was, it was, it was you were proud of the scars on your back that you self-inflicted. Paul said, I bear the scars of Christ. Those were scars other people gave to him. And he got them while preaching the gospel. He didn't go home and do it. That's just ridiculous. A soldier says, you know, I mean, a soldier might say, I got a bullet right here and I got a bullet right in my shin. And then you find out, if you find out he shot himself there, he's not a hero anymore. I did it to toughen myself up. Yeah, you idiot. You have had to miss a couple battles for that, didn't you? Well, I had to take leave. Yeah, you did. There's a difference. So he says they delight in the self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated, puffed up, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to degrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So these are people that, that they're going out of their way not to eat certain foods or not to touch certain things. Not to, all of these things were merely an attempt to apply a, a, a pseudo godly standard to their flesh, but not starting where it really happens, starting in here and letting it work its way out. And it's not working, he says, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. God didn't tell them. Now, see, if God says don't touch that, don't touch it. If God says don't eat it, I don't care if it's broccoli, don't eat it. But there's a difference. These were people that were delighting in their own rules that they made up somehow made themselves feel more holy, inflating themselves. You see, where, where is the focus? Is it on God? It's on you. Even in self-abasement, the focus is on you. Godliness. What word in godliness reminds you of an eternal being? God. The only way to become godly is to fix your focus on God. Godliness is, is all about him. This man-made, legalistic, self-abasement is all about you. One's self-abasement. One's godliness. It says this, verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. So you're going to hear some people call this discipline. They're going to compare it to Paul buffeting his body. But Paul buffeted his body so that he would be able to run the race and win the prize. These folks buffet their body because they think that this is what makes them holy to buffet their body. If my body looks bruised, I must be holy. Listen to this. But are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Oh, that burns you, doesn't it? I cut off my hand and I still want to eat that pie. I cut off my tongue and I still want to lie. I may have to use sign language, but I still want to lie. They didn't help you. This self-abasement, this depriving yourself. I love what David McGrew said when he was here. He says, he said, if you discipline the flesh, what did he say? If you discipline the flesh by the flesh, you'll get fleshy results. 
You discipline your body, but it's by the Spirit, guys. It is by the Spirit. The only way you'll ever get results is letting the Spirit rule, letting the Spirit win, letting God rule, immersing yourself in Him, delighting in Him, nourishing yourself on Him. If you can say, this is my food, this is my drink, this is what makes me happy. And if you find that something else in your life delights you more than His presence, take a break from it. You may not have to give it up forever, but take a break until you don't delight in that as much as you delight in Him. Why? Because there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your taste buds. They're off, and they'll kill you. (laughs) So what do you do? You take a break from those things that have delighted you more than that you've delighted in Him, and you fix it. You you realign yourself. You just say, you're all I want. You're all I need. I nourish myself in your word. I nourish myself in the instruction you've given me through the mouths of the prophets, the word of God, and the men and women you've put in my life. I build myself up in my most holy faith for the purpose of godliness. It's worth it. Now, I know we talked about a lot of things tonight, but I want you to walk away with this thought. This week, tonight, tomorrow, you're going to have opportunities To live like everybody else or to be set apart? If you'll choose to be set apart, if you'll choose to be different, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's going to take time out of your schedule. It's going to take time out of your other relationships. It's going to take time out of your entertainment. It may take time out of your sleep, but it will be so worth it. You'll sleep better. Your relationships will be richer. You'll laugh at things you never were able to laugh at before. I remember my dad saying, my dad said this. He said, he said, the more you grow in the faith, the more you become like Jesus, he says, you laugh at the simple things again. He says, it's not so hard to make you laugh. I wonder what that meant at first. It didn't, he said, he said, you just become innocent again. Have you ever noticed that the world has to, they have to be more shocking and shocking all the time to get a laugh? I mean, you can't, if you see a stand-up comedian on TV, you're like, better not risk it. Could be good, better not risk it, right? Because 90% of the time it's dirty. All the comedies in the theater right now are are rated And they come out on DVD and say unrated. Why would you want anything to do with that? But it's hard to make people laugh these days. They have to be shocked. And it takes more and more to get them to be shocked. But a believer is renewed. All of a sudden, you're washed by the water of the word. And uh, you laugh at simple things again. You laugh at simple, beautiful, innocent things again. Because you're not twisted anymore. <laughs> you're not perverted anymore. You're being straightened out. And all of a sudden, God, see, that, isn't this the thing? People say it's more fun to be in the world. But don't you get it? They have to try harder to have fun. They have to take substances to have fun. They have to make a comedian work a lot harder to make them laugh. Does that say that? I mean, they have to spend way more money to have fun. We have fun for free. Sober. Doesn't this say to you that perhaps just maybe this is the way it was supposed to be? That God's life is the better life? That the real joy is found in him. That true happiness is only found in his presence. And the world will spend all their blood and treasure trying to imitate it, but they'll never get there. This is the good life. Discipline's not a bad word. When you know what you're shooting for. When you know what you're aiming for, discipline's worth it. That athlete, you go, you say, is it worth it? Yeah. Oh, but you have to get up at six in the morning. Yeah, but, but you don't get to eat any time you want to eat. Ah, it's worth it. Ah, yeah, yeah, I know. But, but look at you. You, you, you. I mean, you're a little bit stiff. Ah, it's worth it. It's always worth it. It's worth it. Be worth it, guys. Change your schedule. Change your affections. Change your diet spiritually. I'm telling you, you can change your, if God tells you to change your physical diet, do that too. Change your spiritual diet. Change the voices that are coming in. Adjust them. Adjust. And I, boy, if I could say one thing, I, 
I keep hearing more and more this year more than ever. Limit the voices in your life. Limit them. Because you're meant to be nourished on the Word. It's not a coincidence that it's the Word. You are nourished. That is the food you eat. That is where you get your life. That's where you get your energy. That's where you get your hope. Worth it. Praise God. Boy, we could spend a lot more time. We won't. We could spend a lot more time on how you can control your mind, you control your thoughts, control your words, control all these things, but that'll come with the Word. You nourish yourself on the Word, that'll, that'll come out. Plus, we've, we've got enough to digest for tonight. So let's stand up. And we're, gonna, we're just going to let God work in us and through us. Let Him speak to you. Let Him adjust what He wants to adjust. You know what? Here's what I have found, and this is just personal experience, and I'm sure many of you have been at this longer than I have, so you should know it as well or better than I know it. How many of you know at times like this, in a service like this, God speaks to you? And when he speaks to you, he says, okay, put this down for a while. And you go, yeah! And then two days later you go, well, I was, I was excited at the time, um, I got eager. Let's adjust that. Let's, I mean, let's not go too crazy. <laughs> I was swept up in the moment. I'm not, nobody's here is using emotion. You're not swept up in the moment. You're hearing from God. And your flesh wants to talk you out of it sometimes. <laughs> Don't let it. If any decision you should make, you keep. It's the decisions you make when you're fully soaked in his word and his presence. After an hour and a half of worshiping God through song and receiving the word, you're probably at a better place to make a decision than after an hour of watching The Price is Right. Thank you, Jesus. God, we worship you. We glorify you tonight. And Lord, we want you to be glorified in us daily. Oh, godliness, what a goal. What a treasure. What a hope. We have set our hope in the living God. We've set our hope in the cross and the resurrection. We've set our hope in who you are and what you've done. There is no other hope. My hope is fixed on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, there's no other hope for me. There's no other, there's no other hope that we can, we can hold on to. No other sacrifice that we can depend on. We depend fully on you. Lord, we place no dependency on the flesh. No value. No hope, no trust, but all our trust is found in you. In the same way, Lord, as we trust in you, teach us, disciple us, train us, that we can run and not be defrauded of our prize. We can run and not be disqualified. We will discipline our body and make it our slaves so that we can run and not be disqualified, so that we can receive the imperishable wreath, the crown of life that waits for us. The prizes and rewards that you have for us are infinitely better than the rewards of the world. We choose you first. We choose you. Help us to choose you daily. Choose you all the time. And to begin to delight in you as we were meant to delight in you. As David delighted in you. As Jesus delighted in the Father. As Paul delighted in you. As, as everyone who's ever known you and trusted you has delighted in you. May we delight in you. Not in the things of this world, but in you. In Jesus' name. We want nothing else, nothing more, because you're all we could ever handle. In Jesus' name. Amen. God is good. Be blessed. Love you very much.